The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining today's discussion on geopolitics and the markets. We'll also take a look at some of the big media companies reporting earnings this week and at the recent rally in bonds and what lower yields could mean for the economy and the markets. My guests today are Barron's Deputy Editor, Ben Levison, and Matt Gertgen, Chief Strategist, Geopolitical and U.S. Political Strategy at BCA Research. We'd also like to acknowledge and thank the sponsor of today's program, Nuveen, a global investment manager. You can find out more at nuveen.com. Welcome, Matt and Ben. I am so glad to have you both on Barron's Live today. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you, Lauren. So, Matt, we're going to start with you and... I want to ask, you have argued that geopolitical uncertainty is on a secular rise, not a cyclical rise. That's a big statement. But before we analyze that, I want to talk about something more elemental. Do geopolitical developments affect the markets? And if so, how? Why should investors pay attention to geopolitics? Yeah, that's great. That's a very uh, elemental question. Thank you. So they do. They just geopolitics affects the markets in ways that change over time. And I think the easy way of pointing at that is to say that sometimes the geopolitical shock will be inflationary in nature. And historically, wars tend to be inflationary and preparation for war tends to be inflationary. And I think that's the general backdrop that we'll see in the 2020s and, and have, have been seeing. Uh, but of course, there are times in which geopolitics has a deflationary impact, impact. And that was what we witnessed in the 2010s. And so those have variable out, you know, outputs uh, for investors, and it shows that it, you really have to sort of take a qualitative approach to what the risks are, and prioritize them, and then be very concrete about what the what the macro and, and market implications will be. So now let's go back to your statement about a secular as opposed to a cyclical increase in tensions. What do you mean by that? Well, what I'm referring to is a confluence of factors that sort of brought an end to the post-Cold War period. The post-Cold War period was one in which the U.S. seemed to be clearly the dominant player. And that then created a world in which everyone was committed to globalization and expanding trade. And, and, and effectively, it was a world of peace and prosperity, more or less. Um, and, and what we've seen since the Great Recession and and the, the peak polarization in U.S. politics and then the challenges by Russia and China and Iran toward the U.S. global leadership, that has destabilized the world and called into question what is the world order, who's in charge, and it's reduced the ability of the countries to cooperate toward peace and prosperity. Instead, we see a drift, unfortunately, toward war and poverty. And until that drift is arrested and reversed, uh, we'll continue to see geopolitical risks sprouting up and the impacts will be on the markets will be more frequent 
And in some cases, they could be very high magnitude as well. I hate to ask what could arrest that trend because who knows, but any thoughts? Yeah, well, uh, the fir first and foremost, it's clear that the U.S. and NATO need to avoid a war directly with Russia. And that's been one reason why they've sort of dragged their feet in, in assisting Ukraine, is that while they were attempting to bring Ukraine into the Western fold, they ended up with a conflict with Russia, and they don't want that to spill outside of Ukraine and affect NATO countries and then trigger NATO's self-defense uh, treaty, which would then lead to direct war, effectively major power war between U.S. and Russia. And, and of course, Russia shares a responsibility there. Russia is out, outgunned and outnumbered vastly when it comes to any conflict with NATO. But of course, they have nuclear weapons and they've been brandishing those nuclear weapons and they've been irresponsible in many ways in, in which they've and then I think they will be, especially over the coming months as they try to clinch uh, the territories that they've they've taken over in Ukraine. And so that dynamic needs to be prevented. And largely, you know, we've had almost two years of the war there. Largely, we do see evidence that the powers are trying to prevent Ukraine from spilling over and causing a direct NATO-Russia conflict. But that would be a number one way to arrest the, the trajectory toward global instability. And then the other one, I think quite clearly, is that the U.S. and China would need to gauge in a durable detente or reduction of tensions. And, and that would involve a whole series of agreements to improve their relationship. And it's not something that will be simply achieved through President Biden and President Xi Jinping meeting uh, next week in San Francisco. This is not a one-off uh, summit type agreement. It's an agreement that would require a dedicated negotiation. And effectively, it need, we need a result from the 2024 election in the U.S. before we could really embark on that process. We're going to get to that, um, the election. I want to talk a little bit about what's happening in the Middle East. How do you see the conflict playing out? Do you see it expanding? And what should investors be watching? Well, yes. And that's another area where effectively the U.S. and Iran would need to come to some kind of strategic equilibrium in the Middle East in order to, again, reverse that drift toward war and poverty in the, in the, in the world economic system. And of course, we're, we're moving in the opposite direction. In, in fact, you know, everyone now knows that U.S. outreach toward Russia failed, and it's widely believed that U.S.-China economic engagement has, has failed as well. Uh, but the last element of U.S. economic engagement was toward Iran. The, the Biden administration was trying to put back together the 2015 nuclear deal that was a process where the U.S. would give a security guarantee to Iran, and then Iran would freeze its nuclear program. We could lift sanctions. Western countries could invest in Iran. Iran would generate jobs. The youth wouldn't be revolting. Instead, maybe they, the regime would become more stable as it opened up. And then we would effectively see all of the Middle East much more uh, uh, having a much greater stake in globalization and economic development. But this whole process has been derailed in, in multiple ways over the past few years. And the Hamas attacks and Israel's response have further pushed the U.S. and Iran away from detente. Instead, much more likely now that the U.S. will shift to a full-time strategy of containment toward Iran. And as the Iranians try to break through that containment, we'll see an expansion of this conflict in the Middle East. And so 
unfortunately, that's one other area in addition to Russia and China where the U.S. would need to arrive at some kind of some kind of precarious uh, equilibrium in order to stabilize the world system. And, and we're actually moving in the other direction. And that means it's more likely to have major oil shocks that upset the global economy and exacerbate the geopolitical problems we're having. Do you find it odd that oil has not rallied so far? No, not too odd because the geographies, you know, physically this conflict has not affected oil. And so there, the risk premium enters in from the prospect that the war can expand, but then it sort of fades. And we've seen a lot of sort of up and down movement uh, over that process. But if you take a fundamental view, which I do, that the conflict is about whether the U.S. and its regional allies in the Gulf Arab states, Israel, whether they will be able to contain Iran's nuclear and strategic ambitions. That's the key question, and it'll recur over a multi-year basis. And ultimately, that process of containment or, or the Iranian breaking through that containment, that will eventually affect oil-bearing regions like Iraq and the Persian Gulf or, or maybe Iran itself. And so it will end up with oil supply disruptions and it will have a more substantial impact on the market. The trick with geopolitics is that if you take what I say on face value, because I do have a high conviction that this conflict will expand over a multi-year basis, um, that that would mean that oil supply is curtailed and then the oil price goes up. And generally speaking, that's true. But of course, there's also factors pulling down global demand, like the Chinese debt deleveraging. And so you end up with a lot of volatility. That's that's just goes back to that original point that geopolitics does affect markets, but the impacts are variable and it really de depends on the overall context. Uh, right now, in the coming 12 months, I think the context will be a slowing economy and oil shocks will push against that downward uh, demand trend. But uh, over a multi-year basis, assuming demand stabilizes, then you'd see those spikes pushing up on the oil price and having a more... Uh, more important inflationary impact. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to talk about domestic politics for a moment. The 2024 presidential election is exactly a year away. The country is hugely polarized, as we all know, and the race seems to be shaping up as a contest between two candidates that no one is very happy about. How does the market typically perform in an election year, and what are the implications for this particular election year? Right. Yeah, well, the the U.S. election years underperform average years of the S&P, for example, um, and in defensive sectors tend to perform better. In fact, in the average election, financials is one sector that does well, but also uh, tech and healthcare and consumer staples tend to do well. So those are sort of normal uh, processes for a U.S. election. Now, if you look specifically at cases where you have an incumbent president running um, and it's a, you know, it's a closed election, there's an incumbent president and there's an incumbent party that's that's slightly favored. Um, in those cases, it can be a little bit different uh, because there's effectively there's a stronger bias in favor of the incumbent winning. 67 percent of the time a sitting president wins reelection and that going back to the post-Civil War period. So a lot of data there supporting that probability. Um, and if the president stepped down due to old age or something, the, the ruling party would still be slightly favored at 55% roughly. And so that gives the market a little bit of more hope for continuity. 
Um, at, at the same time, if anything interrupts that process, you know, if there's a recession or there's a foreign policy humiliation or some major shock that, that discredits the Democratic Party, then that creates a much bigger impact because it means that that perception of policy continuity is interrupted. So effectively, we have a strong bias toward continuity, toward incumbency. Uh, but then if it's interrupted, you actually will have a correction in the market. And, um, and in this case, for this cycle, because we have you know, restrictive monetary policy and the recession odds are really not low, uh, one of those corrections, it could simply be a standard correction, could easily snowball into a, a full-fledged bear market in anticipation of a recession. And to be honest, that's the the likeliest way in which we would have a party change would be because the unemployment rate starts to go up under the pressure of higher uh, Fed funds rate. And so that would then lead to a, a bear market rather than rather than just a correction. So how should investors be positioned based on everything we've just talked about in terms of geopolitics and domestic politics? Well, the, the balance of the probabilities is for a slowing economy and an economy that then starts to see higher unemployment have knock-on effects. And, the, and this would start to weigh on corporate earnings. And so we would see a we would see what is normally a defensive leaning among the sectors in a U.S. election year. We would see that exacerbated substantially by the by the impending recession. And so I think investors should be positioned to conserve capital and uh, to be prepared for, you know, for for down downside news in, in both earnings um, and the outlook overall. And in meanwhile, of course, inflation will still be somewhat sticky. Inflation is expected to come down substantially, uh, but then like I'm highlighting geopolitically, we'll likely have at least minor oil disruptions, maybe major ones. And so that's going to create a sort of, uh, you know, really the opposite of the Goldilocks environment that the market perceives today. It's going to create an environment in which energy and defense stocks will sort of outperform other cyclicals um, cyclicals will be underperforming, but within the cyclicals, you'll have these pockets that are responding to the geopolitical risk. Got it. All right. I, I want to bring Ben into the conversation and talk about third quarter earnings. We're just about wrapping up the season. Ben, give us an update on how the numbers went, and then we'll get into some specific companies. Sure. I mean, the, the numbers have been actually quite good, at least the earnings side of it. Um, reading from uh, Wells Fargo's Chris, Chris Harvey summed it up pretty well. He said that uh, earnings have come in 7% above the consensus and 82% of earnings are topping those estimates, um, which is pretty amazing. The average over the past four quarters has been 74%. The downside of all this is that sales are only coming in 1% above consensus and that's below the 2.1% average. All the margins are doing all the work. They've uh, increased 80 uh, basis points, so 0.8 percentage points um, quarter over quarter for s and How is that happening? Top. That suggests a lot of cost points. <clears throat> that, that's exactly what's happened. Um, you know, we were talking about recession and, and earnings uh, just a moment ago, and one of the things that uh, Suvita Subramanian over at uh, Bank of America was saying is that companies have already had their earnings recession. 
And how did they respond to that earnings recession? They've done things like cut costs, lay off employees, all those kinds of things. And so because of those changes, you're now seeing um, those margins get better. The other interesting thing that's happening is that the margins are getting a lot better for large caps, but they're not for small caps, which I think is one reason that uh, big companies this year have outperformed small companies. Um, the other thing we need to pay attention to is um, guidance, um, which is all, often that really moves companies. Um, and the guidance hasn't been great. Um, there have been, uh, um, again, this is coming from Chris Harvey of Wells Fargo, there have been only 42 raises um, and 52 cuts uh, this quarter, and that's versus 94 raises and 52 cuts the previous quarter. Um, so companies aren't coming out and saying great things about next quarter, but overall, again, there's an argument going on here between, uh, you know, I don't think they're actually arguing with each other, but different thoughts coming out of B of A and Wells Fargo. B of A is saying that a lot of the guidance uh, cuts have been due to two companies, Merck and Pfizer, um, and without them, guidance is actually looking okay um, for the for this overall stock market. So I think what we're seeing is just, you know, we've had this end of the earnings recession, but for some, there's still this debate going on whether this is just a, you know, one or two quarter blip before heading back down again, or whether we're going to see a meaningful earnings recovery. That's big, big debate there for sure. So let's talk about more concrete things, namely this, this week's earnings announcements. It's a big week for media earnings. We're going to hear from Disney and Warner Brothers Discovery. Disney stock has been pretty flat on the year as the CEO, Bob Iger, tries to figure out how to rearrange the company's assets, what to keep, what to get rid of, how to re-energize them. What do you think the quarter will show? What is happening with streaming? What's happening with the parks? What's the general outlook at Disney? Um, I mean, again, it depends who you ask, but I'm going to turn to KeyBank. Um, they're pretty negative on it. Um, they think that uh, growth estimates are too high. They're expecting uh, earnings to actually miss. Uh, and they think that every single one of Disney's businesses has challenges. Um, and that includes their parks, that includes entertainment, and also includes, uh, you know, their networks. Um, it's evident in the stock price. It, it, it is. And that's, I think, the the, the thing to look at is, um, you know, we can say, okay, everyone in these businesses is under pressure, but um, is that reflected in the stock? You know, Barron's picked Disney earlier this year. And I think we're, you know, actually pretty flat on it since, uh, um, versus the market since we picked it. Um, and arguing that a lot of it is reflected in the stock. Um, and I think that's why the earnings are going to be so interesting. So as you said, you know, the stock is up 1.4% of the last three months. It's, it's down 2.1% year to date. Um, and how the market responds, whether it's a beat or, um, or a miss, how the market responds to that is probably going to tell us more and the actual numbers themselves, at least from a trading perspective. And I think that a, a great thing to see would be the numbers uh, for Disney, if, if they miss the way KeyBank expects, for the stock to actually hold up okay. Because that would tell you that a lot of the bad news is already priced in. Mm -hmm. What's the general sentiment on the street? KeyBank is negative. How do other analysts stand? I think it's it's all very split. Um, there, there are people who kind of uh, look at it with um, the way that Barron's does, that a lot of this is priced in. But there are others who just say the problems are too big right now, that uh, you have the network issues, uh, ESPN in particular, um, that are, you know, those businesses are, um, the profitability are, are really slowing. And um, you're not getting enough of a profitability pickup on the digital side yet. Plus, you have the parks, which aren't uh, doing as well as they were, and you just have a lot of issues. And so it just comes down to, is it as bad as it's going to get, and is the stock cheap enough? Mm -hmm. Got it. 
Let's move on to Warner Brothers Discovery. This was formed through the merger of Discovery Communications and Warner Brothers, which Discovery bought from AT&T. It was a messy merger, lots of debt. There was strategic turmoil, but there was also a big opportunity here, according to several members of the Barron's Roundtable who recommended the stock in January. So far, so good. The stock is actually up about 24% this year. So what's on tap for third quarter earnings and what's the outlook? Yeah, it's up 24% this year, but it's down 16% in the past three months. Um, Thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> so, I mean, again, this is, it's a business that is, I, I think, even messier right now than than Disney. Um, they uh, also have their their sports, regional sports networks, which are not doing well. Um, and that's uh, that's going to be an issue. And they're still trying to get people to sign up for, uh, for Max. And there was a delayed rollout in Latin America. Um, and so everything, again, has to come down to, do you think this stock is cheap enough? Um, are is the transition to the linear going to be strong enough? Um, and can they come back? Uh, you know, and and is that going to be enough to to send shares higher? Stocks had a bit of a bounce over the last oh, two weeks or so, um, and and that I always find worrisome for a company where you're not quite sure what's going to happen, and you get a very large bounce off of macro. Um, kind of things happening you know it uh this started on thursday and um I, I just think you have to be a little wary heading into the into the print all right let's now talk about a third media stock that's amc the movie theater company it reports on wednesday this is yesterday's meme stock it's today's troubled stock but movies about the taylor swift concert tour and the beyonce tour seem to be sending people to theaters again, popcorn and all. What does it mean for the industry? What does it mean for AMC? Well, I, I think the, the big thing with AMC is that at some point, they just got to get back to being a movie theater business. Um, you know, you look at the, their stock and it's just gotten hit since, uh, really since August, uh, that July, August period when the whole market did, but it got hit a lot harder. Um, and it, it's also uh, got, it's gotten hit much harder than, uh, than Cinemark, which is, um, you know, it's it's its big competitor uh, or a competitor, um, and Cinemark isn't doing great this year. But it, you know, it's actually I shouldn't take I should take that back. It is doing pretty well this year. If I can trust my facts, that it's up about seventy eight percent. Okay, that's well. <laughs> that that's well. And you look at AMC, and it's it's down over sixty percent. Um, and one is just being a movie theater and the other tried to get into all this meme stock stuff and it's not really working out. Um, and, I, and I think the good news is that even, um, you know, with the strike, there were worries that there wouldn't be any new movies to come out. Um, but as you said, we had the Taylor Swift movie, we had the Beyonce movie, and I know it didn't really help people, but I have to mention the re-release of the Talking Head Stop Making Sense, which is <laughs> maybe the best concert movie ever. Um, I'm not the only one who says that. And, uh, but, you know, it's not going to pull in the box office of a Taylor Swift or Beyonce, but it's a fantastic movie. Um, and But this is all helping box office in a period where um, it might not have been, um, not might not have been great. Um, and so I think that, uh, you know, for AMC, that it needs to really pivot past that, uh, the meme stock stuff. You know, they're trying different things. Um, they I think there was news today that they're offering, um, you know, random tickets for $5. Like, you don't know what you're going to get. You buy the ticket. And you for five dollars, and then something shows up, um, and that that could be um, you know that something that helps people get into movies. I always thought that there would be an there had to be a way to get people to 
go to the movies that nobody wants to see, maybe this is it. Um, you know, get those theaters filled that would normally sit empty. That's just additional revenue. So we'll see how that goes. And that kind of stuff is probably going to be the thing that drives the stock moving forward. Well, I hope I get $5 to go to the Talking Heads movie. <laughs> All right. I want to talk about the market very quickly before we get to a lot of listener questions. We had an excellent, excellent week on Wall Street last week. Is it the real thing? Is it a head fake? Matt, what's your view? Where's this market headed? Well, I can share your sentiment uh, being a fan of the talking heads, but huh. I would say I think this is sort of all rear view mirror type stuff. And what I'm looking at is, first of all, we do have restrictive monetary policy in the U.S. Second of all, the Congress is gridlocked and will be reluctant to provide significant fiscal support. Uh, there will be some fiscal activity as a result of supporting the allies in these different conflicts, um, but it's it's really not dramatic, and it's 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 then going to leave overall fiscal policy probably neutral next year. Um, and then, of course, we're we're you know running down these excess savings that the consumers have had, and that has been the story over the past two years. And finally, like I'm highlighting, we will probably have energy prices staying elevated. Uh, even even as the unemployment rate starts to rise. And so from my perspective, you know, corporate profit margins will be squeezed by persistently high, uh, you know, let's just say sticky inflation, but then, um, you know, then the falling falling sales and falling earnings. All right, Ben, I know you are dying to talk about the breath thrust in the market. So enlighten us, please, and then we'll go on to listener questions. All right. So a breadth thrust is a technical term for when lots of stocks go up at the same time. You know, it's a positive, positive breadth. But there was a special one I, uh, that came, happened uh, this past week called a Zweig breadth thrust, named after a technician named Martin Zweig. Um, he uh, basically looked at the 10-day exponential moving average of NY New York Stock Exchange advanced decline numbers. Um, and he, what he wanted to see is that it goes from below 40% to above 61.5% and do it in 10 sessions. It sounds very, very wonky. But um, what he says is he, he says, look, there's a ton of data on this. It goes all the way back to the 20s. Um, and you can see that uh, the market has done typically very well when these have happened. 84% um, of the time going back to the 20s, the market was higher in six to 12 months. If you only go from the 50s, um, where really the S&P 500 was constituted in the way we know it, the, the stock market has always been higher in six to 12 months. The author that I'm quoting is uh, from Sentiment Trader, um, notes that a lot of these kind of thrusts haven't worked the way that they had in the past, that there's something that's kind of changed the market, but he's still willing to give this one the benefit of the doubt just because it is such a big, um, such a, a big, rare and meaningful one. Um, and so I find that interesting. I, I find it interesting more from a short term thing because I am expecting kind of a rally into year end um, just because it's it, kind of that seasonal time to do that. Um, we had this big pullback. Um, we're getting this bounce now. Um, but I think that it, it does set the market up for a, a decent move higher into year end. All right. We'll be watching. Let's go to some listener questions. I'm going to put the first one to Matt. Gregory asks, what are the opportunities and what is the danger as the world seems to be splitting into two competing blocks? So do you agree with the, with the notion of that split? And then what are the opportunities? What are the dangers? 
Well, I agree that the world is breaking up effectively. Economic integration is failing and economic detente among the great powers is failing. And so we see that quite clearly when we look at European imports from Russia or U.S. imports from China as a share of total imports. And that shows you that this is a factual narrative that disintegration is really happening or fragmentation. But I wouldn't necessarily yet conclude that it means two blocks. Uh, one thing that is very clear is that Europe is forming as, as the EU unifies and continues to integrate in the face of these geopolitical challenges. The EU becomes more of a global actor. India also tends to jealously guard its, its independence and its foreign policy autonomy. And so you have actors that are capable of maneuvering between the, the U.S. and China, for example. And the other element there is that Russia and China, even though I do strongly adhere to the view that they will ally over time, they have some disagreements that have not yet been sorted out. And a good example is in the Middle East, where Russia is happy to cultivate an oil shock over the next 12 months, whereas China really is not. That would be and terrible so, for China. Exactly. They, they import about half of their oil from the Middle East. So so I think the way to view this is that today we live in a messy world. We live in a multipolar world. The U.S. is by far the, the still the, the preponderant power, but there's just too much independence and um, and a lack of, of cooperation among the different players. Over time, I think this will congeal into something that resembles a Russo-Chinese alliance arrayed against a, a an alliance of the U.S. and its democratic allies. And so that that premise does have some weight to it over time. And the the opportunities, I think, are largely to be found in the Americas, because those are going to be the most secure areas. The shatter belt, so to speak, will be the areas peripheral to Russia and China. In other words, Eastern Europe could continue to have struggles even after a Ukraine ceasefire. From Turkey to Iran, we will have instability, Pakistan instability, the Middle East, you see, in fact, Gulf countries are concerned about what can happen on the street in an environment where the regimes are under pressure because they're seen as collaborating with the West instead of defending uh, the Palestinians and Islam. And then, of course, in East Asia, you will also have some shatterbelt activities such as with Taiwan. South Korea also can see a rise in instability now that North Korea is nuclear and backed by China, and Vietnam is not necessarily secure in a world where China is more assertive. So there's that whole belt of, of emerging markets and frontier markets that will be jeopardized in this geopolitical competition. But what that means is that you have places like Canada, Mexico, Australia, you know, the, uh, South America. These are areas that are far separated from the geopolitical conflict and on the margin stand to benefit from a move that favors commodities. Okay, I was wondering, we have um, we had high hopes for some sort of a an economic relationship between the Saudis and Israel. Is that completely off the table at this point? In the short term, yes. In the medium and long term, no, because in the medium and long term, Israel and Saudi Arabia will still have an underlying need to contain Iran. And that's what was driving their discussion about a security pact. And eventually it will resume. 
But in the short term, as I mentioned, Arab sentiment will not allow the Saudis to recognize Israel or or normalize diplomatic relations with Israel. So that, that's really off the table. Um, what they can do is cooperate with the Americans. And so I think the one major question for next year is whether the U.S. and Saudi Arabia dramatically strengthen their relations. It will be difficult for the Biden administration to do that. It'll be sort of about an about face. But I, I think the Biden administration will have to court Saudi Arabia to try to get a more accommodative oil production policy. And if that bears fruit, then there is at least a mechanism for retaining the U.S. relations with the Gulf states. And then over time, that can then expand uh, to try to bring Israel into the mix, but it's not happening for now. Mm -hmm. Got it. Here's an interesting question from Catherine. How will artificial intelligence influence and shape the course of geopolitics? Well, it's a great question. And of course, I get asked about it a lot, but I also would, I, I'll, I'll give an answer, but I would just start with the caveat, which is that probably none of us know. I mean, if if you mm -hmm. had asked in 1990 how the internet would impact the evolution of geopolitics, you would have gotten a be bewildering range of answers. And, and none of us care to go back and listen to what geopolitical analysts were saying in 1990. Although one that I've worked, one who I've worked very closely with, Robert D. Kaplan, he did argue in the early 1990s that the illusion of, of a peace dividend in the, the end of the Cold War was going to create overconfidence in the belief that geopolitics would go away, that geography would go away, and that we would have a globally sort of integrated and unified world that would uh, that would relegate conflict to the dustbin. And, yeah, I mean, exactly. First of all, it's just a sort of a utopian dream that takes hold at different times. Um, and then unfortunately, humans and reality disprove it. But But Kaplan had the foresight to say that these positive moves of geopolitical cooperation, they, they, they don't necessarily change human nature or the anarchic nature of the world system. What they do is simply delay, and the delay can be very fruitful and very positive. And so I think that's, you know, again, in the, in the coming five or 10 years, if we see a successful engagement between the U.S. and China, that could be one of those periods. Uh, but first of all, that's a big stretch from where we stand today. And second of all, it would still be sort of contained within a century-long century competition between the U.S. and China. But having said all that about AI, I would just point out that what technology has done is it has enabled productivity booms, even in an environment in which society itself is sort of capital light. You know, very advanced, mature societies in the West that have, you know, low um, need for new new infrastructure or capital investments, um, you know, not not a negligible need, but just in general, they don't have to build as much capital stock as they used to. They tend to be low productivity economies, uh, but with technological breakthroughs, they can they can then increase, you know, total factor productivity. And so that is an important narrative with regard to inflation. And it could push back against the notion that inflation is here to stay. And my only point would be that the geopolitical shocks that we're seeing are precipitating immediately over the coming years. And therefore, we're likely to have more inflation first before productivity comes to the rescue, uh, if, it, if it does, in fact, do that. That raises questions, of course, about what the Fed is going to do. How do you it's think it will affect policy here? 
Yeah, it does. I mean, so first of all, already the markets are anticipating about 100 basis points worth of cuts next year on the expectation that inflation falls. And I would also add that from a political point of view, I've looked closely at Fed behavior during U.S. election years, and the Fed is inclined to cut, you know, certainly more than hike in election years. And when there's a sitting president, the Fed is also slightly more likely to cut rates. Um, and, and that fits with this macro context where inflation is coming down. Uh, so so in general, we would expect the Fed to be to be more dovish next year. Um, and I think the maybe the area that I differ with some others is that I think it will still probably come too little too late. That's been the norm. Uh, and, and I think the energy shocks are likely to be one factor that that complicates the issue and prevents the Fed from easing as much as they might otherwise do. So so there, there you have it. I mean, we have a world in which the Fed will cut, but maybe not soon enough. Uh, energy prices, they may spike and Saudi Arabia may increase production, but maybe not soon enough. And so I, I think it's sort of a, a, a hopeful or a wishful thinking that the Fed will will cut before the recession and stave off a recession and that the Saudis will provide enough oil to avoid a recession. And, and I'm just not willing to really bet on those hopeful narratives. Okay, that's um, got it there. I want to stick with the theme of energy, but pivot to solar energy. I have a question for you, Ben, from Samuel. What do you expect with solar energy companies after the big problems that European solar companies have, have encountered? Well, I mean, I think, uh, you know, that's been a huge issue, but so has, uh, so have interest rates, um, you know, with rates going higher, a lot of these companies actually have a model where they, you know, are, you know, they're, they're building out solar panels, which takes a lot of cash up front, and then they're leasing them, which means that they are, um, you know, getting their money over the lifetime of the, of the panels. And that's basically, it's almost like borrowing money, and this is not a great environment to be doing that. Um, and so I think that that's one thing that has heavily weighed on, um, on the solar stocks. So I think if, you know, yields keep falling, you could see some of the rally continue in, in some of them. But I do think that uh, the better bet is to look at the companies that uh, if you want to play a renewable energy, um, you're better off looking at the companies that actually deal with the infrastructure um, a little differently, not the panels themselves, but uh, perhaps wiring up the uh, utilities or uh, doing some more of the industrial kind of stuff. Um, you know, Qantas Services and, um, was one that got hit pretty hard recently. It bounced a little bit in the past few days. Um, that could be interesting. Eaton could be interesting as well if it doesn't get too hard, hit too hard by the, uh, well, I guess what people are calling the EV apocalypse right now. Um, but I, I would worry a little bit about the, the solar companies until they figure out what their business model is, is if they, until they find a business model that actually works pretty well. I just want to add Qantas ticker is PWR. And Eaton's is ETN. That's right. Interesting, interesting calls. So for both of you, very quickly, I've got two more questions. We'll spend about a minute on each. Um, 50, I guess that's 30 seconds for each of you. Ben, Frank wants to know, do you invest in commodities in an uncertain world? What's the outlook? Um, I think so. Um, you know, you look at, at gold uh, being uh, close to 2000, even though U.S. yields uh, have gone up a lot. Um, and I, I think that just tells you something about the uncertainty in the world. And I think with com other commodities that that's the case as well. Um, you know, if uh, right now there some of them are out of favor because of, you know, seems like overbuilding and EVs and things like that. But uh, there's really no stopping that. And so that transition. And, and so I think uh, commodities are just going to be a place where you're going to want to be. They will. Uh, um, they, they will react uh, positively um, when the when the world is a little scarier. Matt, do you agree? 
Yeah, I, th I, th I think commodities are attractive. Um, basically, energy security, renewable energy transition, a lot of these things are stemming from geopolitics. Nations like China, um, the European Union, they have to provide energy security. And so they'll have to keep investing in their investment-driven economic models. And the United States cannot afford to fall behind in a new technology that can be revolutionary. And so what we'll see is that even if the U.S. has a cyclical setback due to politics, uh, over the long run, it'll still be investing in renewable energy. Um, and it'll still, of course, be heavily armed in, in, in terms of its defense policy, uh, while Europe and China and other players, India, are, are beefing up their national security. So this is an environment where those critical minerals become extremely important. And we see that on the tech side in the importance of precision guided munitions and radars and sensors, uh, drones. So I, I think that the, the minerals and, and the commodity play is, is important over the long run. And I think really it's just the next 12 months where it can get a shock due to the, uh, due to the slowdown in the economies under restrictive monetary policy. Okay. Thank you. I cannot resist ending with Bruce's question to Ben and then to Matt. What's your favorite talking head song? Uh, <laughs> I actually, uh, whenever I'm, it's not probably a, a popular one, but I love nothing but flowers. Um, it was a parking lot. Now it's covered with daisies. All right. Matt? Mine is, yeah, uh, it's, man, this is a great question. I mean, I guess over all the years, I'd still have to go back to Psycho Killer, <laughs> yeah. which which I guess fits with some of the, the gloomy uh, geopolitical outlook we've discussed today. It certainly does. And since I don't know either song, I don't know what it says about either one of you. <laughs> but I thank you both for being on Barron's Live today. Uh, right. Lauren, thank if this you. is paradise, I need a lawnmower. <laughs> all righty. I want to thank our listeners as well. Thank you for your questions and, and your interest in the call. Tomorrow on Barron's Live, Barron's Associate Editor for Technology, Eric Savitz. We'll be speaking with Erica Clower, Technology Equity Portfolio Manager and Research Analyst at Jenison. They'll be discussing how to invest in AI. Should be a good call. Thanks again, everybody. Stay well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.